0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on
0: Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Mandel Crowley. He is the head of private wealth management at Morgan Stanley. We have a fascinating conversation, not only about wealth management, about working in a giant firm, and how one starts as an intern and works their way up to a really important and influential uh, position, But how he, as a person of color, deals with the lack of diversity in the industry and what various companies are doing about the lack of people of color, uh, the lack of females in investment management, how this happens, and why there are reasons to be hopeful that change has begun, not only in a grassroots basis, but in corporate America as well. And, And that this isn't merely Uh, another cycle where people make noise and then it fades, it looks like things are changing and for the better. So if you are at all interested in wealth management, how to attract and recruit top talent, how to build a financial services firm, you will find this conversation to be fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Morgan Stanley's Mandel Crowley.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My
1: special guest today is Mandel Crawley. He is the head of private wealth management at Morgan Stanley, along with wearing a number of other hats. Uh, He has an MBA from Fordham University and has spent his entire career at Morgan Stanley. Mandel Crawley, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: I appreciate it. It is really good to be here with you. Thanks for having me on.
1: My pleasure. So I mentioned you spent your whole career at Morgan. Tell us about how you first got started in the financial services industry. What did you imagine your career would be like?
2: Yeah, thanks, Barry. I I have to tell you, my path to finance is unorthodox, to say the least. I, I started as a High school intern at uh, one of uh, Morgan Stanley's uh, predecessor firms at Dean Witter and uh, you know at the time it was a work-study commitment making five dollars an hour working about 20 hours a week I had zero interest in finance I mean, frankly I had every intention at that time of my young life to be an educator but you know through this internship I got exposed to financial services uh, specifically the sales and trading business the, the, the capital markets happened to work with a group of um, professionals who took a real interest in me, and the rest is, as they say, history.
1: So how long were you an intern for, and what eventually led you to working on a bond desk?
2: Yeah, so the internship was supporting uh, about 15 folks. It was a municipal bond, public finance, sales trading effort, and initially that internship was only supposed to last a year. And the guy who ran the desk essentially had this relationship with my local high school. It was a vocational high school in Chicago. And every year, he'd essentially have a new student come in, and it was a great opportunity to give you know, a, a kid from the school uh, some exposure. And then you, you obviously have uh, some relatively inexpensive labor doing some relatively administrative things, including running errands, you know, supporting your, your, your salespeople and your traders. And that had basically been the model. Or, you know four or five years and my situation was such where you know I'm one of three boys I won't get overly autobiographical here but my brothers and I we lost our parents relatively early and I was in life where I needed to work right so in addition to getting my education wasn't particularly optional um, around if I was going to work or not so long story short um, being aware of my personal situation, when my internship ended, I was given the opportunity to extend that. And when it came time to going to undergrad, I had the opportunity to work full-time, and then I ended up going to undergrad full-time in the, uh, the evening. Again, it's a non-traditional path, but it's one that, that truly proved to be life-changing in so many ways.
1: So you're on the bond desk for a couple of years, and then you move to is this right, Chief Marketing Officer of Morgan Stanley? That sounds like a giant <laughs> position.
2: Yeah, so I, I spent 14, 15 years in the sales and trading space. So, as I mentioned, started out in the muni area, but moved over to credit and largely you know, it wore a number of different hats in the sales and distribution arena and I had a healthy measure of, of success. And you know, to uh, the point, uh, Barry, it, it's definitely far from intuitive going from being a bond salesman to chief marketing officer. And I, I attribute, attribute that to a couple of things. One, you know, being at an organization... As you mentioned at the beginning, you know, 28 years at a firm, and I happen to be fortunate to be at a place that's very much in, you know, growth mode because I think as a firm, if a firm's not growing, essentially the optionality of the employees is impaired. So Morgan Stanley happens to be in growth mode. Second, you know, and this is more, I think, specific, and maybe this gets into a little bit of how I think about talent in an oversimplified way, you've got specialists, right? And then you've got what I like to call natural athletes, right, with, with some agility. And I've, I've always sort of liked to think of myself as somebody who, who's who got some versatility, who's got the dexterity to do a number of different things if given the opportunity. And so, you know, the culture of Morgan Stanley, as, as bizarre as it may sound, somebody going from fixed income to becoming CMO, which, by the way, my, my wife was quick to point out that I don't even have a creative bone in my body, but uh, the firm decided that I still was the right guy for the opportunity. But the firm has a history of moving talent across the ecosystem. A quick example of that is there's a guy who ran, uh, co-led our fixed income business globally, who is now the chief technology officer also runs operations and has responsibility for the overall resiliency uh, of the firm. And so if you look at some of the executives at Morgan Stanley, that is, it's actually fairly common, more common than most people would think.
1: So how did you get from chief marketing officer to head of private wealth management, bonds to marketing to wealth management, as you said, not the traditional career path?
2: Yeah, like private wealth business is a that I've I've long had a great deal of, of interest in. So when I was in sales and trading, in many respects, my core sort of market, if you will, my core client were financial advisors, and by definition, their clients. And so I had always been fairly proximate to the wealth management uh, franchise, and some of our most active counterparties, if you will, were you know private wealth advisors, and so that was. Sort of my early, experience, uh, if you will, uh, to that business, and there was an individual who ran the business, you know, call it circa 2005, 2006, who who had always been impressed with, and and so it, it was always an opportunity. When I was in the in the chief marketing officer job, one of the benefits of it, the first time I got an opportunity to sort of zoom out and and see the full firm ecosystem, and I, I got a an incredibly deep appreciation for the brand of Morgan Stanley, not just in the U.S. context, but globally. Uh, I also got an opportunity to appreciate how all of the different businesses within the firm, so from sales and trading, investment banking, prime brokerage, wealth management, investment management, how all those pieces fit together. And the one common denominator uh, across each of those businesses is that private wealth essentially you know, had a reason to be connected with each of them. And so uh, the fascinating mm-hmm. thing about the, the private wealth business, if I had to oversimplify it to a single word, is the complexity of it all. And so it was that complexity that, that really got my attention and, again, that level of curiosity that I had. And, and so as I was in my third year as chief marketing officer for of the firm, it was a role I was enjoying a great deal. The opportunity presented itself, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it was one that I knew I was going to go after, and, and fortunately, the firm had the confidence to give me the mandate. And now it's been three years since I've been in the seat, and it's been uh, everything I hoped it would be.
1: Quite, quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the financial services industry. Obviously, there's a diversity problem. Uh, when I look out at the advisor space, very few women, even less people of color. It seems like it's even worse than the societal-wide issues. Is there something specific to finance that it just hasn't caught up um, with the diversity requirements we see in most major companies?
2: Yeah, Barry, I'm, I'm glad you asked me the question, obviously, there's a, it's a multifaceted, uh, I'll start with at a, at a macro level, of, you know, that this is a, a structural challenge, the issue, I know we're specifically talking about diversity, when you, you start thinking about, you know, what I call the broader social injustices that are prevalent, frankly, I would argue, that they're very present across our entire social ecosystem. So uh, this is not something that's idiosyncratic to wealth management. You know whether it's, you know the educational system, housing, the list could go to, could go on and on. I, I'd say within our industry, I think we've got a we've had a poor history of sourcing talent. I think there, we've had some long-held negative perceptions uh regarding uh, you know, people of color, and in some instances, women. And again, this is to to be clear. This is this more historical context, you know, which has contributed to why the results that we have today, in terms of the representation that you mentioned, why we are where we are, is is a is a function of things that obviously go back essentially generations. And I do think we're at a place where you know we've been talking about you know the case for diversity for for decades. You know, for the last 30 years, there's been plenty of podium fodder around the, the need to do it like both on the gender front as well as from a racial perspective. And now I think we're at a place where uh, the level of intentionality that we're seeing across organizations is starting to improve, but we've got a long way to go. I think, you know, our history of hiring talent from within what I would just simply describe as, you know, common or said more specifically majority networks, whether it's, you know, college alma maters, country clubs, you know, members of lacrosse teams and things of that nature. Because in the final analysis, you know, if if I were to, again, distill this down to a single word, I'd say it's about, you know, trust, right? We tend to hire people that we are most comfortable with. So that's at a a macro level, Barry, that's kind of how I, how I think about you know the current state of of play, to be sure I am hopeful, but when you get into the the nuances uh the wealth management business, and this is something that obviously you know better than than most, you know raising money is hard, you know especially when you are a you know a person of color, right, where you're trying to do this uh, something that's hard for anyone. You're trying to do this against a social structure in which the, the wealth pools are not reflective of our population. So the African-American representation in this country, 13% of the population, but we hold less than 3% of the, the wealth, right? So in the spirit of, of trying to build and, and scale a business, you have got to be able to acquire clients that don't look like you. And in, that, in some respects, that defies many of the long-held you know, sort of beliefs, if you will, around you know a lot of investors, a lot of clients, a lot of LPs. They like to do business with people who look like them or you know, share a lot of, of the common attributes. So I do think that the measure of difficulty for for people of color is is pretty uh, challenging. And the last point I'll make, uh, Barry, is, is it relates to women. I think that. You know, you know, in our business, you know, I think that, you know, call it twenty percent of our advisors are are women, and and that's, this is one that just has never made sense to me. When you start thinking about some of the attributes that most successful advisors have, I, for one, believe that you know, women, in many respects, you know, have those attributes in spades. But I think many of them have had to make you know very difficult life decisions around obviously you know raising you know their families and. And stepping away from the business, I think that there's been a tendency to, to to place women into support roles and service functions or what have you versus seeing them as, as as having the ability to lead their own wealth practices. Now, again, you know, we're seeing tremendous improvement on that front. Frankly, it's an area that I would say I'm most hopeful, uh, but we still have a long way to go.
1: I have so many questions to throw at you based on, on what you said. First... Is there cause to be optimistic that we're seeing a sea change take place? I've watched this cycle repeatedly over the past, let's call it 30 years. This is the first time it feels like, hey, maybe something might get done. It seems that the public has become so much more aware, use policing as an example, I, I think the average suburban mom was shocked to see the reaction of police against peaceful protesters over the past couple of months. Maybe this is the little bubble that I exist in, but it feels like there's a broader awareness of structural issues than I've ever seen in my lifetime anyway, or am I just being optimistic about a little feel-good sensations of the moment?
2: Yeah, like I, I share your optimism, Barry. I do think this time is different, and and I'm under no false you know illusions that you know we're going to get to perfect on the other side of this. But I do think we've got a real shot at at better. And, and the reason I, I I feel that way is is a couple of things. One, I think just given the confluence of events that have taken place in 2020, I mean, obviously the uh, the COVID pandemic has forced us all to you know, into a completely different you know, space. So specifically, many of us are home, working virtually, uh, what have you. And, uh, and so when you go back to uh, whether it's you know, the George Floyd murder, obviously a lot of the news and, and the narrative around the, the tragedy around Breonna Taylor or Maureen Aubrey, the fact that we're all home in a world where you know, the, the competition for Mindshare is the greatest we've ever seen, but I think we've been able to focus on issues in a way that we probably wouldn't have before. So that's that's one point. The other thing, more importantly, that actually has me hopeful is just, you know, uh, the young people. When you look at the, the demographics of the protesters, it's not just, you know, uh, black Americans that are leaning in. I, mean, I think it's a tremendous amount of representation from our majority colleagues. And so that allyship, uh, I think, is at a level that, you know, particularly with younger generations, uh, it's at a level that we've never seen before, and, and frankly, I think it is the the younger generation that is going to demand that things are a tad bit different. So, I am again, I'm not naive about it. it. Change tends to be hard. It it always moves slower than you ultimately want it to, and I think folks, you know, get the idea that it's not about you know these these false binary choices of, okay, I, I support you know, Black Lives Matter versus the police, right? That's that's an oversimplification of the issue. You can actually be supportive of of both. And, and, and again, I think uh, the majority of people get that.
1: Huh. Well, it certainly is the role of youth to agitate for change. That's been their historical role. If what we are both feeling, that this seems to be a pivot point, that it is different this time, what's a reasonable guess for how long it'll be before, let's take financial services. How long will it be before our industry looks a little bit more like America looks?
2: Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it's going back to some of my earlier comments uh, around how we got here. Uh, It took generations to to build uh, the current state. The state, the obvious, it, it will take a sustained commitment on the part of Uh, Again, just staying within financial services uh, around all the corporations that make up this great industry that we're privileged to work in to stay focused on this, to stay intentional about it. Uh, I like to use John F. Kennedy, JFK, back in 1960, he made the declaration that we're going to put a a man on the moon, and that didn't happen until 1969, right? So it it clearly is a process. It, It clearly will take a much higher level of, of accountability and not just from you know the leadership I think you know even from our clients and you're starting to see this you know Barry as you know play out in, in some of the institutional you know circles where institutional clients are now demanding diversity uh, before they are willing to uh, to do business with you and I think you know the individual investor or the individual client hasn't quite got there yet but but I'm encouraged that 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 will be the outcome. And you and I both know that there's uh, no better way to turbocharge change than when clients start to, to demand it. So again, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but this is going to take a lot of work and it's going to take you know a great deal of transparency and the appropriate levels of accountability to ensure we get to, to a better place. And, and I'm hopeful we will.
1: Last thought on this. I think people have been genuinely surprised by how much change is being forced not by activists or investors, but by corporations themselves. Think about Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Think about what FedEx Mm -hmm. just did with the Washington football team is their new name. They're no longer using the Washington Redskins. They basically, I I believe it was FedEx, went to management and said, hey, if you don't change your name, we're withdrawing our support for Mm -hmm. your team um, and for your stadium. It's kind of shocking to see such aggressive leadership, but it's not just those two companies. We're seeing yeah. that everywhere. So so the question I'm leading to is, are we going to see change come from the grassroots up? Is it going to come from the government down? Or is corporate America going to play a surprisingly outsized role in fostering change?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I, I think the Throughout this our country's history, uh, I I think grassroots has always been at the center, and dare I say, the catalyst for for change. Right. So, so I think that that is an evergreen sort of reality. But I think what's different now it's less about government because you and I both know the state of our politics. You know, I would just simply say we've seen better days. I think what's different is corporate America. (laughs) And this goes back to, you know, you know I'll, I'll just use Milton Friedman as, as an example of, of uh, there was a point in time where the, the, the paradigm or the philosophy was the, the role of the corporation is singular, right? And that is to produce returns for shareholders. And you fast forward to, I'll just highlight the, the, the business roundtable, right, that's made up of, you know, prominent CEOs, uh, who've come out publicly and said that the role of the corporation is is beyond just you know shareholders. It's, it's our employees. It's the communities in which we work and live, and and I think you're starting to see corporations. And you gave a couple of the great examples. You know, lean into some of these social issues. And I personally have been encouraged by some of the the public. You know, not just the statements, but the public actions that we've seen in the wake of, again, the George Floyd tragedy, which again gives me some hope that we can get to a better place. And so, this is something that has to be permeated across the entire corporate structure. So, from the board of directors, you know, you CEOs that are running companies. I mean, you and I both know we only have four African Americans who are leading companies within the Fortune 500. But it's also got to be folks within corporations that are running businesses, sitting on operating committees. Management committees, etc uh, etc. So I do think we're in a we're at a different sort of point in time where in addition to the grassroots movement, I think corporate America is going to do a better job than it has done uh, historically and we're starting to see some of that play out.
1: yeah, you know I, I know I said last point, but I'm fascinated by the topic the one more last point. If you remember marriage equality and and how much of a cultural wedge issue that was for so long, I think a lot of change bubbles up beneath the surface between the activists on one end and either government or corporations on the other. And when that sort of changed, when (laughs) then-Vice President Biden sort of pressed, Mm. then-President Obama kind of spoke out of school and push the issue forward almost by accident the rest of the country was surprisingly ready for those changes i think i think it had slowly been morphing over time and and as you said earlier it was the young people who were driving a lot of those changes before it became really just uh, you know the the standards in society changes i i wonder if we're going to see something similar here that as much as this looks like a pivot point, and the concern is, we've been here before, we thought things would change, and they didn't. I, I wonder if this might change sooner than we think. Is that overly optimistic? Or, or is there any sort of path that leads to a broader societal shift more quickly than I think we traditionally expect?
2: Yeah, I think it it depends on where you sit. And it depends on you know how you're keeping score. I think you know, just coming back to our industry, I think one of the areas that, you know, that is far more controllable and uh, candidly, I think you'll see much greater improvement sooner versus later is, you know, start with the analysts and the associates, right? So the often used funnel analogy, right, in terms of bringing people into the industry and how we recruit kids off of, you know, college campuses. I think you're already starting to see that net widen, where the industry used to live, as you and I both know, used to live at a certain, almost a fixed level of colleges and universities because there was a view that that's where the best talent, you know, resided. I think you're already starting to see corporations or institutions get much more sophisticated about how they think about sourcing talent. So I think at the top of the funnel, you'll start to see much greater not just representation of, of, the, you know, of the country, but I think you'll maybe even see organizations over-index. And so then the key then becomes, you know, how do you ensure that the funnel isn't leaky, right? How do you ensure that you retain the talent? And there's a number of tactics, whether it's obviously the off-to-use mentor programs, but I think one of the areas that I like to see uh, corporate America get better uh, at as it relates to diverse talent is on the sponsorship side. And I think to the degree we can do that more effectively, I think we'll see uh, better, much better outcomes over time. But the thing that will take time is again representation on our boards. Uh, you have you know whether it's you know uh, government action like California where it's starting to you know where they're starting to mandate it. You know at least as it relates to the number of women on boards, which I think again that that is a positive outcome. Uh, but as it relates to the number of CEOs and, and folks running businesses, I think that that will take some time.
1: Yeah, to say the least. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the financial services industry. And you wear a lot of hats. So I I, I like the fact that your perspective is so broad. And let me reference a few of those. So not only do you run private wealth management, you're the co-head of the institutional client coverage group global sports and entertainment, family offices, resources, international wealth management. Is there a lot of overlap between those areas or are those all very distinct positions?
2: Yeah, no, it's a a great question, Barry. Uh, So the the portfolio, uh, PWM has become a bit of a portfolio at Morgan Stanley. You know, obviously you mentioned a number of the, the specialty businesses that are within, I'd say with PWM, the international wealth business and the sports entertainment business are very, very, uh, there's some common themes that cut across all three of them. And, and that common thread is ultra high net worth individuals, you know, families, uh, foundations. And essentially the distinction becomes, in the case of the international business, jurisdiction, right? Jurisdiction mm-hmm. where the, where the client actually lives. And you know, at Morgan Stanley, we've got a fairly robust offshore uh, business, but all of the advisors are based here in the U.S. And the, the thing that you know made sense to us strategically is why separate you know businesses just based on where the source of wealth is, because as you and I know, the, the issues, the challenges that families of affluence are looking to solve, frankly, are quite similar, you know, as you go around uh, around the world. So that was that logic. And then the sports and entertainment business is a, is a unique segment where clearly you have a lot of ultra high net worth uh, individuals across all of our professional sports or across the industry of, of, of entertainment. And as we know, right, the not only is the source of wealth different, the duration of income, right? Just given the contractual nature of of many of those clients are a bit unique that requires a certain amount of expertise. But but pulling those businesses together just made a good deal of sense uh, for us. And then in the institutional uh, client coverage business uh kind of harkens back to my, my old days of, of being in the sales and trading business. It is largely it's equity fixed income focused on you know institutional clients. So that's a little bit uh, different, but there are pockets of, of overlap, especially when you're talking about the family office.
1: So let's talk a little bit about some of the bigger themes we've seen in, in the wealth management business. One has been a bit of a shift from larger wirehouses to independent RIAs. What are you guys doing to attract and retain talent in the face of industry-wide? It's been a pretty broad trend.
2: Yeah, you know it's, it's interesting, and I I see a lot of reporting on the shift from uh, the defection from the wirehouse to the to the independent channel, and you know it, it's interesting as we as we have this conversation, Barry. You know, at Morgan Stanley, we're having our best net recruiting year ever, and so so said simply, you know, that it just hasn't been our uh, reality. And I don't say that out of, of, of arrogance or surely not hubris, but but we have not actually seen um, a material defection of talent uh, going uh, independent. Look, we, I believe our value proposition at our firm is it's obviously our brand. You know, eighty five years. Uh, in the making, and I like to believe that that's real currency for our advisors out in the marketplace. We talk a lot about our platform, uh, how robust it is, our scale, which allows us to invest uh, back in the business uh, at a level that's not easily replicated in the marketplace. And then most importantly, and this is something that I trust would would resonate with you, uh, is our entrepreneurial culture. Right, Our advisors have a tremendous amount of flexibility uh, to uh, to run their business. Of course, there's, you know, we have our control partners to make sure uh, that everything we do is in the spirit of of what's in the best interest for clients. But we try to maintain uh, that entrepreneurial uh, culture and that flexibility. And so that combined with, you know, strong local leadership in our branches across the country, uh, our leadership, senior leadership team, which I'm a part of that, uh, but, you know, uh, Vince Momia, who runs the Uh, the CEO, Andy Saperstein, who runs a broader business. I mean, we try to be fairly proximate to our advisors, right? So they feel like it's truly a real partnership. But I'd say when when you combine uh, world-class investment bank, world-class investment management, world-class wealth management, that's extraordinarily open in terms of our platform, open architecture. Uh, I think that the combination of those things has been, a real driver of, uh, of retention, uh, you know, for us. And that's not to say again, that we don't lose talent. Uh, of course we do, uh, but we're not seeing it it, at at such a clip where where we would define it as uh, a problem.
1: Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about what clients are looking for these days. There has been a huge shift in inflows over the past 20 years, from the more actively managed portfolios to the more passive indexes, ha- how are you seeing this play out with your clients and with what people are looking for in what's become a very volatile environment?
2: Yeah, as you know, and, and I think about our business, we've got 3 million clients, obviously, who sit at various levels of the risk spectrum, if you will, clearly the, the mega trend towards Passive is something that's that's impacted the you know the entire industry, but but look, I, I think that it's also fair to say that we still have, particularly when you go up market, you still have a a huge population of investors who are incredibly focused on on idiosyncratic driven alpha and mm-hmm. and want to partake and partner with, if you will, invest with. Uh, you know, active managers that are out in the marketplace. So, yeah, me- beta has has definitely, you know, uh, uh, engulfed uh, the industry. But I think when you get into periods like, frankly, we've experienced this year, you know, having those managers who've, who've demonstrated a, a consistent uh, sort of track record of delivering said alpha uh, for clients, you know, frankly, you know, I think they're going to continue to win in the marketplace. So, uh, so yeah, we've got a lot of clients who who are, you know, doing passive investing, et cetera, but they're absolutely complementing that with, with uh the best of the best managers out there.
1: Huh. Makes sense. What about ESG investing, environmental, societal, and governance? That seems to be something that looks like it's gonna become more popular each year, but when we mm. track it certainly captures a lot of mind share, but when we track the flows, it hasn't really Done as well as well, certainly not passive, but it seems to be pretty steady and not growing all that much mm. what what are you seeing in that space
2: yeah look i, I said we've been we've been focused on um what I'll just call categorically the sustainability uh, effort for some time, and we established uh, an institute of Sustainability, about 10 years ago, uh, our CEO chairs it. Uh, Audrey Troy, our chief sustainability officer, has been been leaning in, uh, on this topic for some time. And this is almost very like the diversity conversation that we, we had earlier. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's been a lot of podium fodder around ESG and sustainability uh, for decades. But I will say over the last four or five years, you're really starting to see Change take place where again I think the the thesis around ESG I think that been fairly compelling and I, I think you're starting to see and I'll just speak to to my firm in terms of just you know capital flows you know we're starting to see a meaningful uh, shift and we're hearing this from huh. clients pretty meaningful clients from family offices are starting to to talk about it. But when you have a firm like you know, BlackRock, which obviously is the biggest player in the in the asset management space, and Larry Fink has obviously devoted a, a tremendous amount of his platform to the topic, I think that's where you're going to start to see a, a bit of an acceleration. So the product proliferation is starting to happen. To your point, the capital flows you know, probably not as robust as, as some other areas, but uh, but I think it's coming. I think it's inevitable in my own personal view.
1: Yeah, no, I don't, I don't disagree with that. So I'm calling you from my master bedroom at home. You're at home. Most of the country is still working in challenging conditions due to the COVID 19 pandemic. What sort of unique challenges have been thrown at you running the private wealth management at Morgan Stanley due to the lockdown, the pandemic, et cetera? How is this impacting how you guys run your business and, and deal with clients?
2: yeah I mean if you know, if you go back to you know the first second week of March, and if you had said to me that either the firm or the business was going to go completely virtual and everyone is going to be working from home, my reaction to that would have been one of great concern. <laughs> Fast forward uh, to where we are, and today we still have over ninety percent of our employees who are working virtually all across the country. And when I tell you, Barry, that the plant, while it's been pressure tested, that uh, the plant is doing extraordinarily well. I could not be, you know, uh, frankly more surprised, but said uh, better, more impressed mm-hmm. with the level of productivity that we've been seeing from, from our advisors, from their support teams. You know, when you look at the business results, uh, the firm obviously announced earnings a couple of weeks ago, the firm, not just winning wealth management, but just across the entire plant, the, the firm is performing extraordinarily uh, well. Now, uh, obviously, underneath those headlines, I mean, there's a lot of complexity. You know, we've obviously had to go through the heartbreak, like, you know, frankly, all the organizations where you've lost people. We've lost a few employees. We've had employees who've lost family members as a result of COVID. But even when you have folks who've lost relatives, even if it doesn't have anything to do with COVID, the fact that we can't grieve the way uh, that we used to. There's obviously a great deal of concern around just isolation, right, folks being isolated. You know, mental health is is a topic that we're spending a good deal of time on. So so while at a macro level, really pleased with how we've been able to perform, clearly, just given how unnatural this is, there are some some people-related issues that, that we remain very, very concerned about.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. But you mentioned a key word that I think surprised a lot of people to the upside, and that's productivity. Given how productive everybody who has the luxury of being able to work from home have been, what does that mean when we go back to work? When when fast forward, I'm gonna make up a number, 2022 there's a vaccine, there's herd immunity, uh, we're we're going out to shows and eating in restaurants indoors again. Do we go back to work? And and what does that look like? Does everybody come back to work? Or, uh, you know, it raises a question, do we really need to have office towers filled with people when so many folks so comfortably and so efficiently can get their jobs done at a
2: distance? Well, you know, Barry, it's funny when you were when you're talking about 2022 and you were, you know, hitting on some of the highlights, you know, we're out at restaurants, we're going to shows again. I, I will just tell you, partner, I cannot wait for that to happen. Like a big smile came on uh, on my face because I miss all of that so much. I mean, the way we think about it at, at Morning Stanley is we're going to be incredibly responsible in terms of how we return to work. And, and I don't think the new world, uh, uh, when we're on the other side of this, uh, goes back to the old world. I think it's it's not going to be this binary of, you know, do I work in the office or do I work remotely? I think it's going to be both. I think we've proven that the added flexibility of folks being able to work uh, virtually is an asset uh, for us. And so I do think that that's going to forever be a part of our workplace strategy uh, going forward. But I also think, you know, again, just speaking for my firm, I think that we understand the importance of community and culture and having our our folks together uh, will always be a key part of our DNA, you know, if you will. So I don't anticipate any material downshift in our real estate stack to be fair, but can you maintain your, your office space presence, but, but also make sure that your employees when and where appropriate have the flexibility to work remotely when necessary. Uh, absolutely, and so that's where I think we'll land. But I also will, will highlight, you know, another you know big positive area, you know, of, of the, the virtual world. Number one, our clients—we've seen just a massive uptake in um, what I would just simply call the digitization of our wealth management, you know, business, and the fact that clients are now comfortable with you know meeting with their advisor over Zoom is going to be a big benefit to us. You know, we've got support teams, resources that support our advisors, like if you think about our estate planning specialists uh, or our philanthropy specialists where they're, they're jumping on planes all the time and trying to go meet with advisors and go meet with clients, we're going to be able to be a heck of a lot more efficient in terms of how we collaborate and how we deliver resources to advisors and clients because, again, we're now all so much more comfortable at video conferencing. So I think that there's going to be a lot of positive things from the work from home world that will ultimately make its way to the, the old world, uh, if you will that will make for uh, a, a much better uh, work environment for advisors for clients, uh, etc.
1: Yeah, I, I agree and, and probably with a higher quality of life if you're spending less time in airports and hotels, especially if you have young kids or a family. You, you mentioned clients. let me throw a few questions to you. Uh, about some clients. First of all, what are you hearing from your clients about the economy? I, I know the single biggest question I've been hearing lately is, has the stock market gone crazy? How has it decoupled so totally from the economy? What are you hearing from clients?
2: Yeah, you know, look, that's definitely one of the main, you know, themes—the the dichotomy of of what's happening in the markets, right? Where we are literally sitting back at historic highs from you know the the underlying economy, and we know where we are with with unemployment and and the the, the state of of small business, etc., uh, across the country. So, so we see a couple of things. Number one, you know, cash positions have absolutely jumped. I think our cash position within private wealth is up fifty percent from where it was uh just a year ago and I think you can wow. can think about that in both defensive and offensive ways. So defensively you've got some folks who, who don't believe the hype, right? They believe we've come mm-hmm. back way too fast and the underlying fundamentals uh don't support it. Now at a macro level, Morgan Stanley, our research uh team has been calling for a V shaped recovery. But even within that that thesis uh, I don't I don't know if we would necessarily envision the markets being you know have snapped back as quick as they have and so I do think that there's a, a good deal of caution on the part of many of our clients. So so many of them have raised cash because again it's just defensive posturing. Now the other side of that is you've got clients who are playing offense here. And so they've raised cash because they want to actually, you know, have powder drive to take advantage of some of the massive dislocations that we've seen uh, in the markets. And so some of that will take place, obviously, in the private equity market. Some of that will take place, obviously, in growth equity or venture. But some of that is just, you know, uh, taking advantage of um, dislocations that exist in uh, what I just simply call, you know, a regular way, you know, sort of equity business. So so you've got that, that happening. So that's one thing. The other thing that we're seeing uh, on behalf of clients is, I mentioned this earlier, uh, the estate planning engagement is just on fire, right? Clients, you know, whether it's, you know, around taxes and maybe that has something to do with the fact that we're in an election year and folks are starting to to reposition. But I think more importantly, you know, given the devastation that we've seen going back to COVID for a second, I think that folks, uh, particularly multi-generational families, are really taking a long, hard look at the various structures that are housing their assets uh, and they are they are as engaged. And maybe, again, maybe because we're all home now, they're as engaged and as focused on some of these more emotional things than I've seen, surely, since I've been running uh, the business. So looking at graphs as an example, just given where, uh, obviously, where interest rates are, just just one uh, example. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, and maybe this is just a function of where interest rates are, you know, a great deal of activity on the other side of the balance sheet, on the liability side of the balance sheet, where... Our ultra high net worth clients are borrowing at a level uh, that is, is far faster or much faster than than any of our other uh, segments. And so so the demand or the, the, the appetite for capital is, is definitely very much alive and well.
3: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. What, why sell an asset if you don't want to when cash is practically free? I think, what was it, two weeks ago, mortgage rates hit their lowest level ever, that, that yeah. that's some some incredible data so you mentioned not only the defensive move to cash but also the um, offensive move to cash it raises a question do you hear from clients concerned about market valuation is the sensation stocks have run too far too fast off the lows yeah. what, what sort of valuation pushback are you getting these days
2: yeah, I think that you know that's a debate that's playing out, and that's the beauty of markets, as you and I both know. There's a bid <laughs> and there's there's an ask. But you you've got you know some clients. I mean, look at what what we're seeing on the metals front. Look at what's what's happening with gold, right? You you've got some clients who who are not, as I said earlier, they don't believe the hype, and they believe that a material correction you know could be in the offing. Now you've got the other school of thought, right? That's you know the long-held true, uh, not Truth, but the long-held view of, of don't fight the Fed and just the extraordinary amount of stimulus that we've seen, right. um, obviously from central banks around the world, and then obviously from a fiscal policy perspective. Obviously, Congress and, and the White House are uh, in the throes of, of debating, you know, the next round or the next leg. But when you take a step back, as you and I both know, being in this business for as long as we have, I mean, the action. Is, is unlike anything that, the, not just the action, but the speed of the action is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so the debate is, irrespective of the underlying fundamentals, are we at a place now where there's so much money floating around our system that you know markets will continue to you know, their perpetual move higher. But that's a debate that's playing out but you got some clients who are you know, basically taking risk off the table, you know, leveraging structured products, uh, you got some folks who, again, are, are putting a ton of money in uh, in gold and other uh, precious metal instruments because, yeah, again, they think that you know there's going to be this unleashing of inflation at some point, and uh, the market's going to uh, go into some significant downturn. But yeah, know that's the life we've chosen, partner. As you know,
1: <laughs> to say the least. Last client question: Are you getting um, any concerns or questions about the upcoming election? We heard a ton of stuff heading into 2016 and right after the election. It's been a little quieter this time around from what I'm hearing. I'm curious as to what you guys are hearing.
2: I think it's, uh, you know, it depends. Start with, you know, where on the political, you know, spectrum you sit. I mean, ultimately, it's been relatively quiet. and, And I think that's true even with with institutional investors, uh, but now we're getting close. Right? It's it, it surely when we get on the other side of Labor Day, I think that the election will clearly dominate the markets and will dominate mindshare for reasons And that, let, me just, um, let me just clarify,
1: Mandel, let me just, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. Let me just clarify. I don't mean what are people asking about who you think's gonna win or what's gonna happen in the Senate yeah. or anything like that. I mean, specifically, right. Hey, what happens if there's a major shift, if there's a blue wave that's right. and the Senate flips yeah. and Biden wins? What does that mean for my taxes? What does that mean for my portfolio?
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly where I was going. I think, you know, there's, if you, you and I both know this, if you look at the, you know, the history of, of irrespective of who's in the White House and, and almost in some respects, irrespective of who's you know, dominating Congress, the, the the performance in the markets, right, are, are far more similar than I think most people believe. But where I was going was we've not seen uh, what I would describe as material movement of, of capital or, or, you know, just simply say you know, asset class repositioning where, you know, you feel like there's a, a link to perspective or potential outcomes from the election, but what we have seen is amongst some of our multi generational families, I, I talked a lot about estate planning where folks are becoming increasingly sensitive to you know tax policy. Right. So so that's one where um, you know it's pretty intuitive to me if uh, one is assuming it's just called it a Biden presidency, uh and assuming that taxes are going higher, you know, we have started to see Again, still relatively early days, families start to get a little bit more concerned and focused on that.
1: Makes sense. And our last question about the industry, we see some of the real tech-driven startups, apps like Robinhood that are popular amongst the younger day traders, or platforms like Betterment that are using algorithms to manage portfolios. Where do you see the future of technology going? Is it something that's going to replace Advisors, or is it going to be a supplement and a tool used by advisors?
2: Yeah, it's. I'm really, you know, glad you, yeah, you asked me this question, Barry, because I, I think the uh, there's this assumption, right, that the the incumbent firms are at risk of being disrupted, and, and clearly, uh, whether it's you know Betterment or Robinhood, and there's some some great what I would call Digital natives that have come to market that, that frankly, I think are healthy uh, for the industry. And before I get more specific, I will say that I think the beauty of the digital natives, as I call them, is I think that it's forced um, incumbents, you know, our firm included, right, to turbocharge. The shift from a paper print fax ecosystem to a largely digital one. So I think that that's been one of the more pronounced implications of these digital you know, uh, platforms that have e- emerged, but, but, but uh, I'm going to be direct about this. I, I'd say that folks assume we're going to be disrupted, and, and we actually have the view that given, again, as I said earlier, our brand, our size, uh, our scale, that we can actually be the disruptor of of the industry and our base view uh, in terms of the future state is that it's not a man woman versus machine right we actually think it's going to be man woman plus machine right so that's the bet Mm -hmm. that we are are making and so having world-class talent with world-class technology we believe that we're going to be in position to to dominate right and so ultimately because we're big does not mean that we're going to be clunky and slow. We think that we're going to be super informed and, uh, and have the ability to respond to forces early on, right? So these disruptive forces that tend to captivate us. And so the thing that I would say, you know, Barry, that has, has been uh, a key part of our strategy over the last couple of years is that there was a time where if you wanted to do wealth management with Morgan Stanley, going back to our origins in the wealth business back in 1977, we only dealt with what were, you know, my business, right? The ultra high net worth. So PWM was the only offering. And I like to use the analogy of BMW. You know, BMW makes the ultimate driving machine. There was a time where Morgan Stanley only sold seven series. But our, our strategy has evolved over the last number of years and where, you know, whether it's our digital, if you want to engage with us digital in a, in a digital way only, we've got, you know, a, a robo platform. If you want, you know, access to a, a person but you know don't necessarily need a dedicated financial advisor, we've got a virtual advisor offering. And then obviously if you want to engage with us, you know, via one of our world class teams. That that's an area that we've always been specialized in that space. So we now sell three series, we sell five series, and we also sell seven series. And so at the heart of in terms of meeting clients where they are, you know, whether it's, you know, direct to client, obviously the E-Trade acquisition, which uh, you know about, is something that we think is going to be a real competitive advantage uh, for us, not just in terms of just the DTC, but but just the technology that that they're going to bring to bear. And then there's been this broader workplace strategy. Like we think that that's going to be the next frontier of winning clients, uh, if you will, is is going to companies and sitting down with chief uh, human resource officers and helping them grapple with you know, one of the great stressors that their employees have, and that's obviously their financial wellness. And so so it's this comprehensive 360 strategy that we have that we think is going to help us be um, a net winner, not just in current state, but future state.
1: Well, well, I certainly do love a good car reference when referring to financial management. <laughs> I know I only have you for a few more minutes, so before we let you go, let's jump to our speed rounds and our favorite okay. five questions that we ask all of our guests. Sure. And let's jump right into it. Tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite, either Netflix or Amazon or any podcast you might be listening to. What What's keeping you entertained during lockdown?
2: Yeah, sure. When my wife and I can take control of, of our television and we're not watching Frozen 2 or Aladdin, you know, that our, our, our girls love to watch, I'd say it's a couple of things. Number one being a Chicago kid, of course, The Last Dance, you know, the Chicago Bulls run during the the Jordan era. Amazing. You know, now the the second, you want to go dark, uh, Ozarks is definitely a show that will keep you in pretty good suspense. You know, Billions, I don't think is as popular as it was, but I'm still very much, you know, watching Billions. There's a new show that that my wife turned me on to, and actually, Andy Saperstein, who runs, uh, our business uh, uh, been talking about money heist is another Netflix gem that I'm just starting to get into. And then lastly, uh, my wife and I we have uh, one of our girls is uh, is autistic, our beautiful daughter, Jaden, and there's a show on Netflix that we love called atypical. So so those mm-hmm. are the those are the shows that that jump out at me when I think about you know my streaming diet.
1: I'm familiar with just about everything you you listed. both my nephew, who was on a bond trading desk, and my sister, are huge advocate of money heists. It's in our queue, and we're definitely going to get yeah. to that. Tell yeah. us about your early mentors who helped shape your career from high school to college to professionally.
2: Yeah, whenever I think about mentorship, I always have to start uh, Barry a little earlier than that. Like I always have to give you know, uh, props to my uncles, my older brother. I mean, they were they were the folks who. The early, early, extremely raw, you know, Mandel, uh, they played a, a huge role in that. And, and in surviving the streets of Chicago, you know, this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for that. But then when you start to get into, uh, in a professional context, uh, there was a, a guy by the name of John Whalen who hired me at Morgan Stanley. You know, uh, again, this high school kid who showed up to interview in a gold suit, you know, in a black shirt. <laughs> Knew nothing about the business. Uh, the guy took a chance on me, so I'll be, be forever grateful uh, to him. And then there's a uh, a guy by the name of Kevin Morano, uh, who I worked for. I mentioned in fixed income, and he was the guy who gave me my first leadership position. And he remains a close, you know, mentor, you know, uh, confidant to this day. And, and again, I, I, I take leadership very seriously. And and he was the guy who served as my early example. And then there's a host of folks around Morgan Stanley today that, that obviously continue to invest the time and effort and in, in, in basically serving as my sort of personal board of advisors as relates well to my career. So I've been, I've been incredibly fortunate.
1: What are some of your favorite books? What are you reading currently?
2: Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, fairly diverse mix of, of books. Uh, one uh, over the last couple of months that have resonated with me is, is, is Can't Hurt Me. By David Goggins, if you want to, you know, sort of make sure you, 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 you if you want to put yourself where you want to go beyond uh, your uh, what you think you're capable of doing, I would I would strongly implore uh, your listeners to, to read Can't Hurt Me. You know, what you do is who you are by Ben Horowitz. Uh, it was sure. a fascinating read. That's largely about, about largely about culture. Talking to Strangers from my favorite author Malcolm Gladwell is something that I've read uh, fairly recently. Becoming by Michelle Obama, again, a fellow Chicagoan and obviously former first lady. is a great read. And then most recently, Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger. Fascinating story. I mean, he's, you know, dare I say, uh, like Bob, you know, I've been at one firm um, my entire career. And yes, there's mergers and acquisitions along the way. But when you hear Bob's story uh, and how he... Uh, literally started at the bottom of the company, and and obviously you know, got to the point of of, of being one of uh, Disney's most you know renowned or, and, and memorable uh, CEOs, and it's just a fascinating story. And 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 he goes into uh, again as, as the mergers and the acquisitions took place, you know what the implications was for, for him personally. Just an incredible, incredible you know person and story, and so so those are the books that that come to mind for me, Barry.
1: What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in wealth management?
2: Yeah, so first I would say it's important for young people generally just to understand that careers are not linear. As you and I both know, sir, it's uh, their circuitous journeys, and my career has definitely been an example of that. So that's one. The, the second thing I, I, I sort of put in this category of, of, of what I call the big three High degree of self confidence, right? The, the the ability to manage your insecurities. We all have them, right? They, they they prop up all the time, and I just think it's it's incredibly important to, to to be able to manage your insecurities over time. And then lastly, which is probably most important for young people, impulse control, right? The ability to control you know your impulses and just not make career decisions based on emotions or snap decisions or what have you. And that's something that you see that's fairly common with young people.
1: What do you know about the world of wealth management and investing today that you wish you knew 20, 25 years ago or so when you were first getting started?
2: You know, having the vision of, uh, you know, 2020 is, uh, in hindsight, is, is a wonderful thing. And I wish, I wish we, we, we had it more real time. If there was one thing I would simply say, and I'm being cute here, partner, is, is I would have gone long rates 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and if I, had, if, I had, if I had done that, I'd be a, a fairly wealthy individual. I, in all seriousness, I, I think that the one we have come to learn and appreciate in this business and, and history proves uh, this uh, time and time again is you know uh, having a, a well-thought-out, plan and sticking to that plan through good markets and bad markets tends to be the thing that over time tends to win the day. The, you know trying to be this active and aggressive investor that's going in and out of markets trying to time this thing has humbled humbled many. So I just simply say you know financial planning, which is clearly a thing today, is something that essentially uh, should have, I wish it had been codified you know uh, 30 years ago because uh, it's that powerful.
1: Thank you, Mandel Crawley, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mandel Crawley, head of the Private Wealth Management Group at Morgan Stanley. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 350 such discussions we've had over the past six years. You can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put together these conversations each week. Reggie Bazil is our audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbron is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.